We pray thee, dear Lord, that thou wilt indeed search the hidden depths of our hearts and bring us to realize reality and reality only as it is in the indwelling Christ of God by the power of the Spirit. Speak to us in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hushed our hearts to listen in expectancy for thy dear name's sake. Amen. Let us turn once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm particularly concerned with the verses 5 and a little later down the chapter, verses 5 and 8. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? Except or unless ye be reprobates, castaways. For we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. If you study this passage in context, you'll discover that Paul was defending his authority. This man's authority in the ministry had been brought into question by the Corinthian church. So he sets out in the last four chapters to vindicate that authority and he declares that the risen Lord has given it to him. And he asks, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you unless ye be reprobates. In other words, Paul throws the challenge back at them and says, are you qualified to challenge my authority? On what ground can you at Corinth challenge what I have to say? In terms of our subject title this morning, what Paul is asking them to do is what I'm asking you to do. And I'm asking my own heart to do this morning. And that is, do a little bit of spiritual stock taking. Look into our lives and discover whether or not we measure up to this tremendous, wonderful, transforming truth that Jesus Christ is in us and therefore utterly adequate unless we're reprobates. Now we've just come to the end of a very wonderful week of meetings where the supreme truth has just been this, Christ, our life. Major Ian Thomas's messages have left an indelible impression upon all of us. And some of us will never be the same again as a result of that wonderful series of messages. But I think it's right that in view of all we've heard, we should ask ourselves this question. Are we in the faith? Is Jesus Christ truly in us? Or are we shams, hypocrites, counterfeits, reprobates? In this spiritual examination, this stock taking to which I'm drawing your attention this morning, there are three aspects I want you to fix in your mind. First, taking stock 
by personal examination examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith and then secondly personal demonstration prove your own selves and thirdly personal realizations know your own selves how that Jesus is in you unless you be reprobates first then take stock by personal examination examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith this is the starting point for us all this was the starting point for those Corinthian believers with the faith you claim to possess can you honestly say Jesus lives in me in all the power of his Godhead and authority or are you doubtful about that will your faith stand the test of a fair examination are you afraid to subject yourself to the scrutiny of a God enlightened conscience dare you apply the tests of faith which this particular epistle applies now taking that very term faith and carrying it through the two epistles of Paul to the Corinthians Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2 we put it in this form the question I want to ask your heart this morning is this is your faith a sound faith is it a sound faith in 1 Corinthians 15 17 Paul says if Christ be not raised from the dead your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins in that classic passage to which I've made reference chapter 15 of the first epistle Paul argues that for faith to be sound it must reside it must reside in a risen Christ for if Christ is not alive from the dead then he says the gospel is not true the Christians have believed a lie the apostles are false witnesses the loved ones who are fallen asleep are gone forever to be fundamentally sound in the faith is to know faith in a risen Christ so many of us have come to the cross historically we believe that Jesus died he shed his precious blood for the reconciliation of man to God and we've stayed there and we're not aware of a risen Christ a dead Christ on the cross however meaningful is the shedding of his precious blood helps me in no way to overcome the world of today truly we're reconciled to God and we're saved from wrath through his death but but we're saved also by his life the question is is your faith residing in a living Christ a Christ who as we shall see in a moment dwells in your hearts by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit all other tenets of the Christian faith are included and comprehended in this one central focal fact the resurrection of Jesus Christ if Christ be not raised from the dead then your faith is empty they and you're yet in your sins ah but didn't Jesus die didn't he shed his precious blood yes he did but if Christ be not raised your faith is empty and you're still in your sins now it's one thing to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historic fact 
It's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the most indisputable, uncontestable fact in history. It's true that he rose from the dead historically. But do you know that as a personal experience? Is Jesus alive, pulsating, indwelling you this morning? If not, your faith is not sound. It's not sound. Whatever claim to orthodoxy you may have, you haven't a sound faith. Examine yourself, whether ye be in the faith. Paul means a sound faith in his treatment of this term throughout the epistles. He means something else too. He means a saving faith. Moreover, brethren, he says in chapter 15, 1 and 2, I declare the gospel unto you which I preached, which ye have received, and wherein ye stand, and by which ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. No, it's not only a sound faith Paul's asking for, but a saving faith. And a saving faith to Paul was a faith that had a mighty saving influence transforming impact in the life of every believer to whom he was writing it meant knowing the Lord Jesus as Savior in every sense of that word a living indwelling transforming revolutioning Savior within the heart and life may I say this it's easy to talk about Jesus as Savior but tell me, do you know it as a personal experience, moment by moment? Can you honestly say, as I walk out upon every day, I know the power of Jesus Christ in my life, not only as the Redeemer who died at Calvary's cross to cleanse me from sin, but the Savior who dwells in my heart, who breaks the power of canceled sin, who sets this prisoner free. I know what it is to live moment by moment in victory. I know that by faith in this indwelling Savior, I can conquer every conceivable sin that tempts me. I know that he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets this prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Have you a saving faith? Examine yourself whether ye be in the faith yes a sound faith a saving faith ah says Paul something else a steadfast faith watch ye stand fast in the faith quit you like men be strong Paul here defines a steadfast faith as one which is vigilant valiant and victorious and in a day when people are so utterly spineless in the Christian church, they establish a conviction one day and they're gone to pieces the next. When they're carried with the ebb and flow of a tide like a seaweed, blown down the streets without any sense of stability and anchorage, God grant us to know this living faith in Christ, which is both sound, saving and steadfast. Nothing can shake a man who knows a steadfast faith. Is the Lord Jesus Christ challengeable at any point? Is he weak? Is this wonderful Lord vacillating? Does he change his mind? Does he break down under certain circumstances? 
Is he embarrassed when he's up against situations he didn't expect? Is this Christ merely the measure of our puny concepts? Or is he the mighty Christ of God, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient? And he dwells in my heart by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And faith is in him. That's why it's sound. Faith is in him. That's why it's saving. Faith is in him. That's why it's steadfast. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men be strong. Chrysostom says that what Paul is here doing is reprimanding the Corinthians for being indolent. He says watch as though they slept. Stand fast as though they were rocking to and fro. Quit you like men as though they were playing the coward. Tell me is your face steadfast? Is it vigilant? Is it valiant? Is it victorious? Examine yourself. Whether ye be in the faith. Whether ye be in the faith. My friend, don't be, don't be satisfied with anything less. Anything less than a pulsating, living, radiant experience of an indwelling Christ in whom faith is so reposed that it's sound, it's saving, it's steadfast. Ah, but you say to me, I've got such a faith as that. Have you? Have you, my friend? If you have, then I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to ask you, having examined yourself, whether you be in the faith, having taken, having taken stock of your faith by personal examination, Will you now take stock by personal demonstration? Notice what the text says. Notice what it says. Prove your own selves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. If personal examination reveals that there is a sound, saving and steadfast faith, then it follows that there must be a demonstration of that faith and a careful reading of this wonderful letter of Paul to the Corinthians in fact both letters shows that Paul had some very definite ideas as to how this sound saving steadfast faith would be demonstrated Paul is showing very clearly throughout this whole letter that faith is something practical as well as something dynamic it expresses itself he says in a life of prayer in a life of prayer in the first epistle and the 11th chapter, the whole of those first verses are taken up with the importance of prayer. Paul talks about every man praying. He talks about every woman that prayeth. Indeed, so important is this subject of prayer that he discusses even our approach in prayer. Indeed, he goes even to a detail as the apparel in prayer. Tell me, do you demonstrate your living faith in a ministry of personal and public prayer? Can you prove your faith in this? May I ask you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you there at the radio to give some nod or assent. I'm not asking you here to stand in this audience. But I want to know how many of you, how many of you took time, took time, deliberately took time to pray this morning. How many of you withdrew from that breakfast table? How many of you got up early enough to steal into the quiet place and on your knees you opened your whole being to God and you spent a few moments breathing in the rarefied atmosphere of heaven and you prayed 
You prayed. You touched the throne. And if that's your private and personal prayer, tell me, how does that faith of yours demonstrate itself in the public place of prayer? Are you always at the prayer meeting? Does it matter most that whatever commitments you have in business or professional life throughout the week, the priority is prayer? For only a praying church is a powerful church. Only a praying church will know the mighty sweep of revival. A life of prayer. And with that closely related to it is a life of fellowship, says Paul throughout this epistle. And I'm drawing entirely from his use of the word faith. Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthians by saying, God is faithful by whom he are called into the fellowship of his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. God is full of faith. He is the communicator of faith and by faith which he puts in our hearts we're drawn into this fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord and over and over again throughout these epistles we come across words like this when you're gathered together when you're gathered together when you're gathered together and the emphasis shows that Paul says the man or woman who claims to have a sound saving and steadfast fast faith will be regular in the discipline life of the church in the ministry life of the church in the service life of the church in every kind of aspect of church life he'll express that faith yes says Paul provoking one another to love and to good works all these are various aspects of fellowship in the church how do you prove yourself in this you know it's possible to have an ecclesia a called out gathering of people without a koinonia fellowship it's possible to have just individual units of people who call themselves the church why because they do know at least repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ they have been born again and yet there are isolationists they know nothing of a koinonia the sharing of a life in Christ in the corporate body we talk about Jesus in our hearts that's wonderful and that's our central message but what about Christ in our midst shared as a family that you can't live alone any more than you can isolate yourself from your family. The sweetest moments of your life are with the people of God sharing in the life of the church. I wonder how many of our fellowship I'm talking to this morning shared completely and utterly with us through this amazing, indescribable week of blessing we've had throughout last week in the ministry of Major Ian Thomas. Yes, a life of prayer, a life of fellowship. Yes, a life of giving, giving. In no two epistles in the whole of the New Testament does Paul speak so decidedly and clearly and unapologetically about giving. You take the passages I shall refer to and study them at your leisure and you'll notice that Paul gives a whole sweep of teaching on this matter of giving. He says that giving is an expression of sound, saving and steadfast faith. And a man just has to announce the fact that he's a reprobate, a counterfeit, 
a castaway if his life doesn't express itself in sacrificial giving. Yes, hilarious giving. God loveth a cheerful giver. And the only man who can be a hilarious giver, the only man who can be a cheerful giver, is a man who has so studied this matter in the word of God that his giving to God is quite independent of objects to which it gives. He gives. It isn't because of need or of necessity or because it's crushed out of his hand grudgingly. No, no, no. It's because he gives to God even if he had no immediate call upon his giving. It's just a matter of his of his devotion to God and his habit, disciplined system of giving. The tenth to God, the offering to God. The tenth is what God demands, the offering is what God deserves, and it's all God's. It's in God's treasury, and it's my joy as a steward to take out of that which I've given to God already and prayerfully distribute it as God gives me wisdom. Yes, hilariously exercised, handsomely exercised. He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Do you know anything about that? Sowing, scattering, just like a man who's going out to sow the seed. He doesn't wait to see just how many grains he's going to distribute with one handful. He dips right into his seed sack and he sprays the seeds out as lavishly as anything. Why? Because he's knowing that God in heaven will reward his sowing even in terms of the abundance and lavishness of his sowing. Do you know anything about that? Habitually exercised is this giving. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. How has God prospered you this week? Did you spend time alone with him to think back over the week and its blessings and say, Lord, in terms of last week I give. As you have prospered me, so I give. And every Sunday you do that. Upon the first day of the week. No, Paul was never ashamed of speaking concerning the collection. He recognized that giving was a ministry which demonstrated whether or not there was a living faith in those to whom he was writing. A life of prayer, a life of fellowship, a life of giving. Ah, but listen, a life of witness. A life of witness. Look again into the epistle and study it carefully and you'll see that this word faith is used again and again in the release of the Christ life in terms of witness. We are ambassadors for Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 5.20. With singular emphasis, Paul teaches in both these letters that a living faith must be demonstrated by a life of gospel, witness, and soul winning. This means personal evangelism. This means corporate evangelism or general evangelism. This means special evangelism or missionary evangelism. Oh, we've been hearing some wonderful stories this past week of the way God, God in Christ can release the resurrection power of Christ in the power of the Holy Ghost in reproducing that life in men, women, boys and girls. There are fellows and girls, men and women in New York this week who are the elect of God. 
They're in a certain place at a certain time to be spoken to with a certain word by the right people who are led by the Spirit of God and the released life of Jesus Christ can bring them into life. If only we know this indwelling Christ in all his power, personal evangelism. Paul says, I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Tell me, did you lead any soul to Christ last week? Did you? You missed the blessing. You missed the blessing. God had to bring somebody else across your path in order to pick up the contact that was waiting for you to lead and the reward and the blessing and the smile of your Savior that you would have had in a coming day is forever lost so far as last week is concerned. Irretrievable. You missed it. You missed the opportunity. And then there is the shared life, the corporate witness, the general evangelism says Paul we are laborers together with God and he bands all those Corinthian believers together and he says you're a church and we are together laborers with God and as we bind ourselves together in the name of the Savior and by prayer and the released life of Christ in a given place we can we can just shake an area do you know Sunday evening here every Sunday evening here could be such a gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus such an awareness of the presence of the Savior that even before people stepped over the threshold of this church to enter in, even before people reached the actual opposite door of this church, they could feel something of the power, the magnetism of a Savior here released in power. It's happened before. That's the whole story of revival. I know the story of Duncan Campbell who used to tell me that over there in the Hebrides when God broke through into the assemblies of his people, Fishermen miles and miles and miles away out at sea had to drop their nets and row to land and with all their gaiters and southwesters still on rush up to the church doors crying to God for mercy. What had ever brought them? Nobody sent them out an invitation. Nobody had looked them up and told them to come in. They were just drawn by the sheer magnetism of a living Lord exalted and magnified in the presence of his people. And that can happen. It can happen right here. That's corporate evangelism. And then there's a special evangelism. My burden here is that there are a crowd of young people under the sound of the ministry who have no business to be here. They ought to be in training school and they ought to be on their way to the mission field to hasten the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there isn't any church that's living in the power of the Holy Ghost that isn't constantly thrusting forth like the church at Antioch, those whom the Lord has appointed. Separate me Barnabas and Saul unto the work whereunto I have sent them. And the Spirit of God should be saying that constantly to our people here. Separate me Dorothy. Separate me John. Separate me Bill. What for? For the work whereunto I have sent them. And the church will acknowledge that. As they wait in prayer and fasting and ministry, as Acts 13 teaches, the Spirit of God makes it clear that here is a man, here is a woman, called of God for the far-flung places of the earth. Special evangelism. Our vision always ought to be for a great door and effectual is opened unto us. And there are many adversaries. Paul counted nothing less than this a demonstration of a living faith. How does this correspond with your experience. I'm asking you, 
examine yourself whether ye be in the faith. You say, yes, I have a sound faith. I have a saving faith. I have a steadfast faith. Well, now, what's the demonstration of it? A life of prayer? A life of fellowship? A life of giving? A life of witness? Paul says this is the outworking and outreach of a living Lord within the heart. But that brings us to this solemn concluding point. If we take stock by personal examination, if we take stock by personal demonstration, we must take stock by personal realization. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless ye be reprobates. Paul is saying in effect that you cannot examine and demonstrate faith without realizing one of two things, two very solemn, challenging things. Here they are, that a person is a committed Christian, or secondly, that a person is a counterfeit Christian. First, a person is a committed Christian. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus is in you? My friend, as I've been speaking this morning, has the thrill and wonder of the fact that Jesus is in you. Just captivated you all afresh. Has your whole being just radiated with that thought, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in me by the power of his Spirit. That's a committed Christian. If you're not that, my friend, then you're a counterfeit Christian. I don't care who you are, what you are, what your background is. The Bible says you're a counterfeit Christian. If you cannot claim that and the demonstration of it as we have been showing today, then listen, you're a counterfeit Christian, you're a reprobate, and a reprobate means not standing the test, rejected, disapproved, and both these realizations carry you with the most solemn obligations. The person who discovers through examination and demonstration and realization that Jesus lives in him, commits himself forever to the authority of the indwelling Christ. He can no longer question that authority at any point. The principle of his life from now onwards is, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. On the other hand, if a man discovers that he's not indwelt by Christ, he confesses by that very discovery his utter bankruptcy and desperate need of a savior from self and sin. This is where spiritual stock-taking brings us. You can rebel against the truth, but verse 8 says, you can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Truth is inexorable. Truth is inviolate. Truth is irresistible. Truth can't be changed by human reaction. You can bump your head up against truth, but truth still remains truth. Are you a counterfeit or are you a committed Christian? You can decide that and demonstrate that here this morning and go out to live it. Let us pray. One quiet moment in the presence of God before our closing hymn. If you don't know the wonder of this indwelling Christ, will you swing wide the door of your heart and say, Lord Jesus, as a bankrupt counterfeit Christian, I come to thee asking thee to indwell me and to become in me and through me all thy perfect will. Will you pray that? Lord, seal with thy Holy Spirit the ministry of this morning. Cause it to be a mighty,
transforming truth and principle in each one of our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.